So, 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 so today's the first day of Holy Week, the week where we celebrate the most important days in human history, perhaps in history, period. You know what? We might as well go big. If it's true, if it's true that God's work in the world is personal in you, communal in us, and cosmic, that is, in all of this, then the most important individual act in that work, that is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, has got, we, we've got to think about it in those terms. But this first day of Holy Week is traditionally what folks call Palm Sunday, a day when we recognize Jesus' triumphal entry into the holy city of Jerusalem. But Jesus doesn't do this like most of the kings that we know. And so, and so as we go through this text, we're going we're to consider two things together. First, what does it mean for Jesus to be king? And second, what does it mean for us to be his kingdom? Let's deal with the first. So Luke generally has the most detailed accounts in his gospel. It's his goal, an orderly account of Jesus' life and death. And so let's take a look at Jesus going into Jerusalem. So it begins, this text that we read begins with the words, after Jesus had said this. So obviously we got to talk about like what Jesus said before. And so he just finished a parable about the coming of the kingdom of God, where a nobleman left his home to be appointed king and then planned to come back. And so he gave 10 of his servants money to work until he came back. And so based on what they earned with that money, he rewarded them. But this man ends this conversation with his servants by saying this, to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Well, that's a wild way to end a parable. Uh, and that's worth another sermon in, in its own right. But one of the things that Jesus is saying in that parable is, if you're going to ask for the coming of the kingdom, understand what that means. Because this king does not play games. So he follows this up by, by finally going to Jerusalem, a trip that he's avoided for a very long time. Because he knows that this is going to be the place where his, where his earthly ministry ends. This is the final stop on his ministry tour. Jesus has spent his entire ministry up to this point avoiding the public claims about him being Messiah and about him being king. But at this point, he, he decides to take it with all of its complication. And so in verses 28 to 36, we, he, gets, he gets the logistics together. So he's getting ready to ride into Jerusalem on a colt, on a donkey, which you might think is weird, but it's not. Donkeys are actually signs of kingship and royalty as early as the third millennium B.C., and so also, this is what the scriptures say he's going to do. In Zechariah 9.9, it says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, what's, what's lowly is not his riding on a donkey. What's lowly is what he's riding to. Because he's not riding in to claim victory. Not yet. No, he's riding to his death. When Jesus actually rides in, in verses 37 to 40, you get an interesting exchange. Verse 37. When he came near the place where the road goes down, goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. I want to be aware of two things. Who's rejoicing and what they're saying. 
We're told in verse 37 that the crowd of disciples is going wild. And so it's, it's important for us to have context as to like what a customary royal visit is supposed to look like. So basically, once the, once the valued guest shows up, the city is supposed to send out its dignitaries to meet this person, to escort them into the city. And then when they show up, the whole city is supposed to come out just dressed, dressed, just, just, just tight. And then, that, and then that dignitary is supposed to give speeches about how awesome the city is to receive them. You don't get any of that. The leading citizens of Jerusalem come out to see Jesus. It's just a crowd of ragtag disciples. Said another way, what appears to us to be a welcome is actually Jerusalem's broader rejection of Jesus. You see, we like to think of Palm Sunday as just an example of fickleness. We, so we say that, that, you know, the same crowd that welcomed him was the same crowd that crucified him. But that's, that's, not, that's not entirely true. The disciples are doing the right thing. They're rightfully celebrating Jesus. They're, they're rightfully calling him what he is, king. They're quoting Psalm 118. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Yeah, that's, that's Jesus. They're rightly naming the extent of his kingship, peace in heaven, and glory in the highest. See, it's not, it's, not that, it's not that Jesus isn't an earthly king. He is. But his kingship is not bestowed by vote or by any other earthly process. He's king because he made the universe, because he shapes the universe, and because he sets the rules and the boundaries for the universe. Basically, the, the crowd of disciples is loudly yelling precisely what gets Jesus killed. You're king, and Caesar is not. Now, as a bonus, this is, this is what Paul is talking about when he says that salvation comes in declaring with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and, and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Whenever we declare that Jesus is Lord or Christ or Messiah or the Son of God or the King of Kings or the Lord of Lords, we're all saying the same thing, that Jesus is King and no one else is. And guess what? That's a very, very risky thing to say. Hence the response of the Pharisees in, in verse 39. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, hey, Jesus, don't you understand what Rome is going to do to us if they get wind of this treason? And Jesus' response is great. It's not, oh, you're right. How politically unwise of me and them. It's not, oh, you're right. My ministry would be served much better if, I just, if I'm just quiet. No, instead he says, look, look, look. It's who I am. If they don't say it, the rocks are going to say it because I made them too. Ain't nobody ready for Jesus. So then, so then, so then, so then when he actually goes to see the city, does he, does he rejoice? Are there people who come out to meet him? No. Nobody recognizes the king. And so what does Jesus do? He weeps. And does he utter blessing over the city? No. As a matter of fact, the opposite. Jesus in verses 42 to 44. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus is outlining the stakes of the gospel. Remember, gospel means good news. And it's, and, 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 it's, and it's not just a, it's not just a biblical word. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a word in Greek that, 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 that refers to the good news of the coming of an imperial power. Just like Roman emperors and conquering kings had gospels that were proclaimed when they, when they won, so also Jesus has a gospel. The good news of his coming is good news for those who recognize him. But it's very bad news for those who don't. 
In this case, he's speaking to the city of Jerusalem, and he's saying that if you don't recognize Jesus as your king, you're going to face the wrath of the Romans, which is exactly what they do in the, in the year 70. But the triumphal entry is not complete because he's got to come to the temple. And instead of preaching at the temple, he tears it up. Verses 45 and 46, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus is quoting from Jeremiah here, a sermon where, where the Lord is uttering judgment on the temple because of its corruption. In this case, those who seek profit have taken over. And Jesus, as one of his final moves before his arrest and death, decides to clean his house out. Yes, his house. When he says, my house will be a house of prayer, he means it. And so, so, so here we've got another claim to divinity. It's really interesting when you read the rest of the book of Luke, because like Jesus, like, there's like a tone shift in Jesus' teaching. Like he gets like a little more aggressive because he knows that the religious leaders want him dead. And the triumphal entry signals to the world he's not hiding anymore. This text presses one thing hard about this man, Jesus. Jesus does not conform to the expectations of him. Specifically, no one's ever seen a king like him. Let me tell you what I mean. So as you guys probably know by now, one of my favorite texts, and perhaps one of the most important texts in the scriptures, is 1 Samuel 8. After the period of the judges, a time when the people don't have a king, the people look around and they think, hey, everybody else has kings, we want one too. And so they tell the last prophet judge, Samuel, that they want a king. And so Samuel doesn't like that, so he prays to the Lord, who then warns, who then tells Samuel to warn them, these are the things that a king is going to do to you. And so in 1 Samuel 8, 10 to 18, the Lord tells the people, the king is going to take their sons as soldiers. He's going to use them to stockpile weapons and wage war, that their daughters are going to become perfumers, cooks, and bakers, that the king's going to take the best of their resources, the best of their fields, the best of their vines, the best of their cattle, the best of their flocks, and the king's going to enslave them. You would think this would discourage the people. But the people are like, no, 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 no. We still want a king. We want somebody to fight our battles. And so we have the history that we now know, where political power does exactly the same things that God said the king would do to Israel. Constant war, constant exploitation, over and over and over again. And it's even worse. And, and this, is, this, is, I, this, this is something that I was made aware of. It's actually a conversation with, with Slim. That it's deeper than that. Because in 1 Samuel 8, it sounds like God is just kind of like giving up. He's just acquiescing. Like the people, basically the people say, hey, we still want a king. And the Lord just says, listen to them and give them a king. Sounds exasperated. Fine. Give them what they want. It's like if your child just kind of keeps nagging you for something. And you're just like, okay, fine, fine. You can watch Minnie. Minnie Mouse. Uh, fine. But it's deeper than that. In Hosea 13, 11, as Hosea is preaching to the people of God about their idolatry, he has this line from the Lord. So in my anger, I gave you a king. And in my wrath, I took him away. You see, God giving the people a king wasn't just a fine, you can have one moment. It's an act of judgment. Because remember, God is supposed to be their king. They were freed from Egypt to be an alternative social, political, economic, and spiritual community. They were supposed to be a community that didn't need an army, that didn't need slaves, where there was no poverty, no exploitation, no domination, because it was supposed to be a place where the Lord was and where the Lord ruled. 
But the people didn't want that. They wanted to be like everybody else. And so the Lord in judgment let them. He let them go through a history of kings who did all the things that he warned them that the kings would do. Even the ones that we think are good were terrible. David raped Bathsheba and killed her husband. Solomon, though apparently wise, had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That doesn't sound wise to me. And as a result, he was idolatrous. He was also extremely greedy. We like to talk about him as extremely rich, as though that's a good thing. Kings are explicitly commanded in the law not to multiply gold for themselves. The scriptures are pretty consistent in telling us that there are no heroes. They also keep telling us that it's often when one is in a position of power that the opportunities to fail, to fail miserably, and to fail publicly increase exponentially. It's not really that great to be the king of a people who are never supposed to have a king. And so then all of that history then meets up with the prophets talking about the Messiah, another king, Israel's last king, a king that would come bearing peace, a king who wouldn't accumulate for himself, a king who wouldn't exploit, a king who would not oppress. No, this king would bring peace. This king would unite the people. This king would share, not hoard. This king, in fact, rode into the city that was supposed to welcome him, and, they met, and, and he was met with no fanfare at all because he wasn't really the king that they wanted. They wanted a king who would fight their battles. They wanted a king who would overthrow the Roman Empire. They wanted a king to vindicate their history, to vindicate their religious practices, to stand up to the oppressor on their behalf. Maybe this is what you want of a king. Maybe this is what you want of Jesus. Maybe you just want somebody to fight your battles. Maybe you want someone who will eliminate your enemies. Get you that promotion that you're, so, that you're so sure that you deserve. Someone to finally get your kids in line. Someone who will get you that spouse that you've been wanting for years. Someone to get you that job. Someone to get you that thing that you want because they're, because they're the ones in charge. But what that really means is you don't want a king. You want a slave. You want someone who will do what you want. Because what's really important is what you want. And sometimes we treat God in this way. I think I, I even do so in my own prayer life. Sometimes I'm tempted only to pray when there are things that I want. There's a great mnemonic for the types of prayer that we engage in, acts. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. So adoration, we're adoring God for who he is. Confession, we're confessing our sins. Thanksgiving, we're giving thanks to the Lord. And then supplication, asking for stuff. And for a lot of us, 99% of our prayer is supplication, just asking for stuff. It trains us to think that God's just there to do stuff for us. But instead, the triumphal entry to Jerusalem tells us something about Jesus' kingship. He sets the agenda. And he does it however he wants to do it. Because he's the king. <laughs> Part of recognizing the kingship of Jesus is recognizing that the best life for you to live is the one where you're doing what he says rather than him doing what you want. But more on that later. Jesus is also not the kind of king that the people want or have ever seen before. He's not a king who amasses gold for himself. As a matter of fact, we're told that he, for much of his ministry, didn't have a regular place to lay his head. There was a debate on Twitter a week or two ago about whether or not Jesus was broke. And yeah, he, he kind of was. And you don't expect a king to be broke. 
He's not a king who exploits or dominates. As a matter of fact, he would tell his disciples that power is not for domination. It's for service. If the Lord sees fit to put you in a position where you have any influence, any authority, any power, it is always to be used for the good of the vulnerable. He's not a king who amasses armies. As a matter of fact, there's going to come a point in his, in his arrest when, when a literal army is going to come to arrest him and one of his disciples is going to try to defend him with a sword and in Matthew 26, 53, he's going to say this, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Said another way, it's like, it's like Jesus telling, telling those out to get him. Look, y'all are fighting with toothpicks. I've got drones. And yet he doesn't call those armies down. Not even in his earthly ministry is he a king who wages war, at least not in the conventional way. The expectation was that salvation would come by cataclysm, that the Messiah would come in a blaze of glory, sword held high, slicing down the the human enemies of the people of God left and right, and riding through the city on a war horse, celebrating the spoils of victory. And instead what they get is a religious teacher on a donkey. A religious teacher who would march as we will celebrate this week to his death. And not just any death. A death in which the rulers, authorities, the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil would devise and visit upon his humiliated body. A shameful death. A brutal death. A death the likes of which would compel us to avert our eyes. And yet that very death would actually be a display of God's power and his love. We think that power looks like domination. In Jesus' case, power looks like dying. We think that love looks, looks and feels all warm and fuzzy. And in Jesus' case, love looks like dying. We think that kingship is about victory. And victory is all about celebration. Well, in Jesus' case, victory began with dying. Brothers and sisters, the kingship of Jesus seems absurd. The whole narrative in Luke 19, 29 to 46 defies expectations. With, with every event, the reader is supposed to think, wait, that's not what kings do. And that's definitely not how you're supposed to treat a king. And the reader is right. What Jesus does is not what normal kings do, but it's what they're supposed to do. And no, the people of Jerusalem don't treat Jesus as they ought, but, but we can't. You see, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, took on flesh, and not just any flesh. He took on the form of a servant, a poor Jewish man. He he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as a result, a few days after his death, he rose again with all power in his hands, and he got up as a king. We're, We're told in Philippians 2 that in the resurrection, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. At Jesus' name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Well, what does that really mean? It means that the resurrected Christ is not your bellhop. He's your king. And there's one thing that kings need, like definitionally, for you to be a king, you need this thing. Kings need a kingdom. You can't be a king without a people. And so the question for you today is simple. Do you want to be one of those people? Because this king is not going to exploit you. This king is not going to dominate you. This king is not going to abuse you. This king is not going to take advantage of you. But he's still a king, and so he's going to require some things of of you. He's going to command you to treat your neighbors in a particular way. He's going to command you to think about your money in a particular way. He's going to command you to steward your sexuality in a particular way. And some of us don't like the language of demands, but the Lord's got them. 
And in order to be members of the kingdom, a few things are necessary. Repenting, believing, and rejoicing. Three things that we're going to continue in for the rest of our lives. Three things that ought, to, that ought to bleed through the entirety of the Christian life. Our lives are supposed to be lives of repenting, of turning from sin and turning toward the Lord and our neighbor. Turning from greed and turning toward economic solidarity with our neighbors. Turning from pride and turning toward the Lord and humble service of our neighbors. Not just saying we're sorry, but putting structures and habits in place that move us to love one another rather than ignoring and hurting one another. It applies to our neighbors, it applies to our coworkers, it applies to our spouses, it applies to our children. Yes, sometimes you have to repent to your children. That's how you preach the gospel to them. But we're also to be a believing people. If you're a Christian, then you say that Jesus is Lord and you believe that God raised him from the dead. Well, those are two key beliefs that lead to particular actions. If you say that Jesus is Lord, then what you're saying is your ultimate allegiance is to the Lord. That means that if Jesus and his word tell you to do something, then you do it. It's what saying Jesus is Lord means. So when the Lord says, love your enemies, when the Lord says, give to the needy without needing fanfare, when the Lord says, forgive instead of holding grudges, when the Lord says, sacrifice for your brothers and sisters in Christ, the kingdom of God is made up of people who do those things because the Lord tells them to. This is John 14, 15. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. But here's the real kicker. We're to be a rejoicing people. I want you to think about the, the remarkable fact that God, the maker of the universe, loves you. And I'm saying this to both the believer and the non-believer. God loves you. And not just in the abstract sense. In the material sense, God doesn't just feel a particular way about you. He acted on it. This, this is the other John 3.16, 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. If you're wondering whether or not God loves you, this is the answer that the scripture gives. And that's not a little thing. It's a tangible thing that God has done for you. But here's the thing. I don't want you to just know that that's true. I want you to reap the benefits of it. Because so long as we're without Christ and separated from him, nothing that he suffered or did for our salvation benefits us. He has to become yours. He has to dwell in you. You have to be united to him because then you can get the blessings of the fruit of the spirit. Then you can enjoy the full benefits of the kingdom of God. Then you can gain the full benefits of this alternative social, economic, political, and spiritual community. When, when, when a community gathers of people who are actually indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who are actually united to Christ, who are actually committed not only to repenting and believing, but to rejoicing in the kingship of Jesus, committed to living their lives in light of the cross, committed to suffering and serving for the glory of God, then the transformation of the world is made manifest. Then the world can see what a gospel-saturated community can look like. Then, then, we, then we can see, look, this is, this is what we need to see in one another, and this is what the world needs to see in us. They need to see us repenting. They need to see us believing. But they need to see us bringing it all together and rejoicing. Because it's okay to be excited that Jesus died and rose for you. It's okay to be excited that we serve a God who saves his people from slavery. 
It's okay to be excited that you have a God who doesn't leave you alone, but ordains a community to support you. It's okay to be excited that the Lord's power isn't raw power. It's not exploitative power. It's exodus power. It's the will and the power to set free like he did with Israel so he wants to do with you. It's okay to be excited that the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. Brothers and sisters, I want to invite you. If you already know the Lord, I want to invite you to a deeper joy. When the Lord shows up in our and in our brothers' and sisters' lives, I want us to celebrate. Rejoice with those who rejoice. I don't want us to be like the folks in the town who ignore the fact that true peace, true power, true joy, and true justice have come in Jesus and in the community that he's called. But if you don't know the Lord, I have one thing to tell you. The one thing that matters in your life is how you respond to the kingship of Jesus. We're told in the scriptures that every knee will bow. I much prefer to do it willingly and joyfully. Why settle when the feast of union with Christ lays before you? The call of the king is threefold. Repent, believe, and rejoice. Instead of praying, I want to do, I want to do a verse out of uh, all hail the power of Jesus' name.